Well, good morning, church. I hope your day is off to a good start. I hope your time with your family or individually this morning in worship, um, singing songs of praise to God have been fruitful and refreshing and profitable to your soul. And I'm praying that our time now in God's Word is going to be equally as fruitful and profitable, um, even though we're spread out over the Durham region and perhaps even beyond that. uh, We're grateful that we have these means to come together and to unite our hearts and our minds and to come under God's word together and trust that he's going to work in a sweet way. Um, I want to welcome you all here, (laughs) virtually speaking. And um, again, if there's any way we can serve you, I just want to make you aware of the tabs that are on this webpage. And uh, you you can see them obviously there. Feel free to click on those if you need prayer. If we can serve you practically in any way, please let us know. Um, please fill out a connect card virtually there. Let us know that you're here with us. And, um, and uh, again, we would love to be able to pray for you this week. So please, many of you who have been submitting prayer requests, we want to encourage you to keep doing that. Uh, let us know how we can serve you through prayer. And you'll see a tab there for giving as well. And uh, you can click there and you can give in a few different ways um, electronically, which again would be a huge blessing to the church family and another way you can worship the Lord this morning. I want to thank you, church family. Um, I have received many letters of encouragement personally. Um, Many of you I know are praying for the church, for for me, for the elders, for our staff. And I just want to thank you for all of the prayer support that you've given. Um, We sense that, we experience that. We're seeing God's favor and kindness and blessing through those means. And I just want to encourage you, please keep praying as we continue to keep praying for you faithfully. And I want to thank you also for uh, the way that you are stepping up to support the church through your giving. You've been so faithful to continue to give and to contribute to the work of the ministry, and God is blessing that. And uh, I personally am so thankful um, to the Lord for how you as a church family are um, so incredibly generous to the work of the ministry here at this church. And we pray that God blesses you as you do that. Well, we want to bow our hearts before the Lord now in humble uh, dependence upon the Lord. So let me invite you, um, as you've turned to 1 Peter chapter 5, I trust, um, before we dive into God's Word, let's unite our hearts in prayer together and ask for God's Spirit to work within us. Father God, we love you, and we're thankful, Lord, for this privilege of being able to hear from you. We pray, God, that you would speak mightily to our hearts. God, that you would reach into the depths of our soul to give us encouragement and comfort, to give us peace, to give us rest, and God, to simply remind us of the beautiful truths of the gospel, of how much you love us and care for us. Father, I pray for our church family that you would supply all of our needs, even this morning, that you would remind us of your faithfulness. And God, I pray that you would work by the power of your Spirit. Now, a move amongst us, we pray, regardless of where we are seated. We pray, Father, that your Spirit that dwells within us would move in powerful ways to transform us and make us like our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, every parent, every good parent, has a heart for their children. Um, a heart to see their children grow up and thrive and succeed in a multitude of ways in their life. Every good father has a desire for his children as he instructs his child, as he leads and guides his child from the young ages into their youth and beyond. 
Every good father longs to see their children grow in, in character and integrity and to meet life's challenges um, in a way that is pleasing to God. Every good Christian parent uh, longs to see their children growing in such a way as to know God and to love God in deeper ways and to live faithfully for Him and for His glory. And it's interesting, as we come to a close of, uh, of this letter of 1 Peter, there is a fatherly tone coming from the pen of Peter as Peter closes off this letter, he exhorts the church that he clearly loves and he feels great responsibility towards with this fatherly tone as, as he exhorts them to continue to live faithfully for God and for his glory. He reminds them of some beautiful truths. And really what Peter does is he embodies the heart of God the Father. And so as much as this is Peter's heart for God's children, it's more than that. It's so much more than that. Peter is simply expressing the Father's heart for his children. And we see that in some really profound ways here. As all good things must come to an end, so too our study in 1 Peter is coming to an end. But I trust that as it ends, it ends on a high note for us this morning. We hear Peter's heart as he expresses the heart of God the Father. And if we listen carefully, we can truly hear God's heart for his children. Peter writes these words for us beginning in verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Sylvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Here, Peter expresses to us um, the Father's heart for his children. And the first thing we hear him expressing is this, God's heart for his children is humility in his household. This is what God longs for in his children. This is what God asks for and requires and what God produces in the hearts of his children especially in the midst of suffering and struggle and pain in persecution. He calls us to exemplify a humility that should be characteristic of his household. And in verse 6 and 7, that's exactly what he says so abundantly clear to us, isn't it? Humble yourselves, therefore, he says. 
Humble yourselves. This comes on the, the, the coattails of the verse right before, verse 5, where he tells us to clothe ourselves, all of us, with humility toward one another. And he adds this in, For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He quotes from Proverbs 3.34 there to remind us of this age-old, timeless truth that God loves and honors. He gives grace to the humble, but He opposes the proud. He exalts the humble, and He opposes the proud. He moves now, though, from humility before others to humility before God. You see, the proud person is a divisive person. It's a person who causes much turmoil, not only in their own life, but in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. The proud person serves himself and he sets himself up not only simply against others, but he sets himself up against God. But humility counts others as more important than ourselves. This is to be one of the dominant, dominant attitudes and characteristics of the Christian life. Humility that elicits exaltation from God, praise from God, that God affirms, that God loves, that God cherishes, because it brings unity and strength to his household, to his family. Humility is a necessary virtue for the health of the church. And here, actually, Peter, if we look closely, we can see him really uh, pointing out three important truths about humility that we would do well to pay attention to. The first thing we note about humility is this, that it is a decision. It's a decision. You'll notice that he says, humble yourselves. This is something that we must choose to do in our own lives. We must choose to obey this command to humble ourselves. Peter here assumes, though, that we know how to do this. Sadly, many of us understand the, the call to humility. We understand that it's a biblical command, but most of us struggle to put this into practice. This is a willing choice to put others first. That's what humility ultimately is. It's a willingness and a, a choice to put the, the desires of others before our own, the needs of others before our own, the preferences of others before our own. And this decision requires every one of us to acknowledge pride and selfishness. We have a, a, a biblical theology that tells us that our hearts are inclined towards sin and selfishness. Our hearts are deceitful above all else. They're desperately wicked. And we, we know that if we study the Bible, what we see from cover to cover is this, that the human heart is prideful because of the curse of sin. We long to praise ourselves. We long for glory for ourselves. We long to please ourselves. This is at the heart of sin in the, the Christian heart as well as the, the unbelieving heart. We have hearts that are bent towards sin. It's our natural inclination. And here we're told because of that natural inclination, we must make the difficult choice every single day. We must make the decision to choose humility and to discard and deny pride in our lives. It requires, first, that we assume uh, a selfish heart within us. 
You need to assume when you come to um, relationships, when you come to uh, division in your life and disagreements in your life, you should assume right out the gates that there could be pride that is dominating your heart and directing the way you're choosing to operate. Just assume that right out the gates because of your theology of sin and the human heart. If you assume that, you'll be able to pick up on the pride that may be overt, it may be blatant, or it may be subtle, it may be sneaky and hiding there in the crevices of your heart. But if you assume it's there, you'll be able to see it and expose it. And the second thing you do when you assume that pride is you can ask God for forgiveness and for help to overcome that selfishness and pride. You can get on your knees before God and you can beg for his forgiveness and plead for his mercy and you can be assured that God is faithful to grant it. You can ask God to help you to be rid of the selfishness and pride in your life and to put on humility. And the third thing that we can do as we make this decision is this, apply gospel thinking. Apply gospel thinking Look to the gospel, in other words, and see that humility is built into the, the very DNA of the gospel, where Jesus Christ humbled himself, even to the point of death, death on a cross, serving not his own interests, but the interests of others. This is exactly what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 2, where he calls us to have a gospel kind of mentality. In Philippians chapter 2, Verse 4, he says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He goes on to describe the gospel, and it pulls our hearts and our minds back to fixating upon Jesus Christ and the work that he did on our behalf. The humility of Jesus guides us to make the decision of humility in our life every day. But it's more than just a decision, you see. This decision is birthed out of a conviction. It's a decision, yes, but it must also be seen as a conviction. You'll notice that he goes on to say, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Here, uh, Peter builds into this understanding of humility a deep conviction about who God is and how God will reward those who are humble. It is this deep belief and this deep conviction that, that spurs us on to throw off the self, selfishness, the self-righteousness, and the pride that is so often characteristic of our lives. This phrase, under the mighty hand of God, is used frequently in the Old Testament. And it actually points us towards a significant event, a paradigmatic event in the Old Testament. That is the exodus of God's people from Egypt. In a sense, Peter is calling the people of God to consider God's power to remove them from the slavery they were experiencing in Egypt. God removed them from this plight with his mighty hand. And just as the Lord delivered his people from Egypt, so too he will vindicate his people who suffer here and now. You see, in the midst of suffering, maybe our hearts, we, we cling to prideful responses. We start believing that this isn't fair, I don't deserve this, things like that. Expressions of our pride, even subtle expressions of pride. But here, Peter wants to remind us of God's power not only to save us 
from our suffering and even from our own sin and our own pride, but he wants to remind us that God is gonna be faithful to vindicate and reward those who trust in him. Those who are truly humble and humble themselves underneath his great power. The image of the mighty hand of God emphasizes his power, his strength, his ability. Humility is often undervalued or even devalued in the world around us. But it is prized and rewarded by God himself. Humility exalts others now to be exalted later by God. God opposes the proud. He is actively resisting those who are proud. But he blesses those who are humble. In times of hardship, we like to try to take matters into our own hands, don't we? But our hands are often um, weak, much weaker than we think they are. We're not as strong as we think we are. Our hands are feeble and they're not capable. They're finite, they're not infinite. You see, pride is the result of thinking more of ourselves than we ought to, which is the result of thinking less of God than we ought to. Let me put it like this, a big me leads to a small God, but a big God leads to a small me. This really is the key formulation to both exercising humility and accessing the power of God is to see God for who he truly is in all of his power, in all of his might, in all of his strength, and to turn to him as such, to let go of the desire to be in control, to, to believe that somehow you are as capable and as strong as God is. When humility is cultivated by this deep conviction, we see lastly that it's not simply a decision or simply a conviction. It is also an action. It's an action. He follows it up in verse 7 by giving such a sweet call to our hearts, even in the midst of these trying circumstances that we find ourselves in. He says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. This is such a beautiful verse. Humility is expressed, we see, through an active dependence. There is action required. How fitting, again, this verse in our current context. When so many of us are filled with anxiety and fear, so many of us are experiencing chaos internally as we look around the world and we, we see all that's taking place and we wonder how this is going to impact us, not only in the present moment, but maybe our future. The way we practice humility is by casting all of our anxieties on Him because we're driven by this resounding, deep conviction that He cares for us. This is so similar to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6. He, he exhorts his disciples to trust in God, to fear not, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and to believe that all these things that we need will be added unto us. He reminds us that God, God knows every hair on our head. 
God knows every request we're going to make before we even ask it. God feeds the the sparrows in the sky. He gives them everything they need. And he says, how much more does your heavenly father care for you? Church, this is so precious for us in this moment. This is such a precious truth for, for the entirety of our lives. God cares for you. God cares deeply for his children. And God loves to give good gifts to his children. He loves to provide in abundance for his children. He doesn't always provide what we want when we want it, but he provides everything we need exactly when we need it. It's amazing how quickly we forget this though, isn't it? Our stress and worry and anxiety Theologically speaking, listen up now, it's the result of holding onto our anxieties, somehow believing that we can handle them on our own, or it's the result, anxiety is, is the result of casting our anxieties upon someone or something that cannot bear the weight of them. We cast our anxieties on some kind of an idol, some kind of a God substitute. And we all do this. We all do this all the time. We're doing this all the time. Every one of us faces anxiety and worry. And oftentimes we don't see how this is compounded by how we respond to it. We turn to all kinds of God substitutes. Let me give you um, five simple God substitutes that I think many of us are inclined to turn to. Um, the first one is this, substances. They all start with S. It's going to make it helpful for you, I hope. Substances. We turn to substances to find some kind of rest and refuge. The anxiety begins to pile up, and so we just want some kind of a release, some kind of an escape. And so people turn to illegal drugs or prescription drugs, hoping that's going to solve the, the fear problem, the anxiety problem, and the worry problem that really has spiritual roots. It's interesting that, that um, right now, during this pandemic, I read um, a couple articles earlier today, and I, I actually talked to somebody yesterday who told me um, that their neighbor runs, uh, uh, manages a number of different beer stores. And in both U.S. and Canada right now, alcohol sales in the last week have gone up 55%. 55%. And church, I just want to, to let you know that, that is a clue to where many people are trying to find their hope. What, what they're casting their anxiety upon, what they're fleeing to is alcohol, an escape from reality. Another thing people turn to as a God substitute is sex. They turn to sex and um, sexual immorality. Um, they, they believe that simply running to pleasure is going to satisfy and going to help them deal with their anxiety and their cares. But again, this is a surface level antidote for a spiritual, deep-seated problem. Again, right now, I was doing some research this week. Um, pornography is through the roof right now. Streaming services are being overrun by people running to pornography and sexual immorality. Again, just another reminder, listen, that in times of pain and struggle and confusion, yes, I understand in times of boredom as well, um, people flee to different things as God substitutes. Substance, sex, shows, how about that? 
Um, again, that the data that's coming in, streaming services are, are going through the roof in terms of subscriptions right now. People, again, are trying to escape reality by binge watching series after series, movie after movie, show after show. Again, the, the essence here is, is that of entertainment, that if we can simply turn our, our eyes away from our problem and fix them on something that's going to give us some kind of a temporary escape, then somehow we'll be okay. But again, it never, it never deals with the problems of anxiety and worry. Here's another one for you, sports. And I don't just mean watching sports, although that could be true as well. I, I mean exercise. How much of our world simply believes that we can deal with all of the stress and anxiety and worry in our life by exercising it away. A physical therapy. Let me give you a last one. Sin. And I, I mean this in the most explicit way. Everything I've described is in a sense sin, but not all these things are in and of themselves sinful. Many of them are good and right uh, in the rightful place so long as they don't become a substitute for God. When they become a substitute for God, they all become sin. But here we need to see this. Sin itself, blatant, ugly sin, giving into all kinds of temptations, running headlong into sin, believing that it will somehow satisfy that it will strip away the anxiety. And all these things do is compound the anxiety we experience because they never deal with the root of the problem. So how do we exercise humility in action? The answer is actually very simple. We do it through prayer and by leaning into God's people. These are the two means, essentially, that God has given us to cast all of our anxieties upon Him. We bow in prayer and we offload our hearts onto the shoulders of God. We give Him every single care, believing that He will take them upon Himself, believing that He is a refuge and a fortress and a rock for us to stand upon. Though all the world may be crumbling, we have a sure and steady foundation to lean into. And God's people... God, God has called us to not bear burdens on our own, Galatians chapter 6 says, but to bear one another's burdens, to care for each other in this way, to serve one another. And, and this is a call for all of us to lean into the body of Christ, into the community of faith, the relationships that God has given to us. You see, God is longing to produce humility in His household. It's a decision, it's a conviction, and it is an action that we must, we must apply to our lives. Secondly, God's heart for His children is that we might experience perseverance. He calls for perseverance in His people. Verses 8 and 9, He says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Here He reminds us that we have a responsibility. We have an adversary, He says, the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He tells us to resist him, firm in our faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. He's calling for a kind of vigilance here, a watchfulness that should be characteristic of the Christian life, the individual Christian, but more than that, it should be characteristic of the community of faith, the people of God. And the reason this is, this is so necessary is because we can so quickly and easily be lulled into spiritual sleep, into a spiritual kind of, of laziness, 
Do you remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He was under spiritual attack by Satan. He was facing the cross. He, he was sweating great drops of blood out of just the sheer terror of, of having to undergo and experience the wrath of God for humanity. And he calls his disciples and he sets them aside and he says, stay here, watch and pray, he says to them. And he returns and he finds them asleep. And he says even to them, he says, you can't keep watch. You, you can't keep praying for even an hour. And their physical sleepiness, in one sense, is symbolic. It's metaphorical of the spiritual sleepiness in their lives. Every one of us is prone to a spiritual sleepiness in our lives. And I just want to remind you that when it comes to the military, for example, it's a very serious offense to fall asleep on guard duty you could end up, for example, in jail, um, or you could be court-martialed. In the past, um, you could actually be executed for falling asleep on guard. See, why? Why is this such a serious, serious offense? Because falling asleep gives the enemy an opportunity to attack and to do great damage. That's exactly what Peter is getting at right here. He says, don't you understand? You have a great enemy, an adversary, the devil, and he is not an enemy to be trifled with. You can't fool around with his enemy. He's like a, a roaring lion. He's prowling around seeking somebody to devour. We have an enemy who is strong and powerful, an enemy who does not sleep or slumber, but is always roaming about looking for cracks, looking for those who aren't prepared, looking for those who are sleepy, spiritually speaking. The primary way the devil seeks to attack is by trying to induce fear in God's people. He tries to intimidate believers in the hope that they will capitulate at the prospect of suffering. He wants to, to turn up the temperature when it comes to suffering and persecution and social ostracization. Remember, that's the context of 1 Peter. He's cranking up the heat and he's trying to intimidate God's people to capitulate, to give in, to say, I can't handle this anymore. You see, if a believer denies their faith, then the devil has devoured him. That's the way in which he devours believers by causing them to deny their faith, to compromise the gospel, to turn their back on Jesus Christ. The devil's aim is not to comfort, but to terrify believers. He doesn't want to deliver them from fear, but to devour their faith. Peter warns believers to be vigilant the roaring of the devil is this crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if we do not fear his ferocious bark, we will be consumed by his bite. Resist him, the Bible says. Resist him. This is the constant call to the believer when it comes to spiritual warfare. I mean, those who want to go try to pick a fight with the devil are certainly in great danger. The posture is one of resistance. Resisting the devil here means that the believer remains firm in their faith. Notice that's exactly what he says. Resist him firm in your faith. Where Satan wants to produce doubt and discouragement, God wants you to hold fast in faith. 
He wants us to trust God. And believers triumph over the devil as they continue to trust in God. That's, that's where we display the victory of the cross. That's where we display the victory of our Savior. Jesus Christ trampled over Satan. He did not give in to Satan's demands, to Satan's temptations. Instead, he countered them with the truth of the Word of God. God calls his people to perseverance. Perseverance until the last day that is accomplished only by exercising faith. Faith that is in and of itself a gift from God, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We counter the lies of Satan with the truth of God's word. Church, this is why it's so vitally important that we are a, a people of the book, a creature of the word, that the word of God so fills us and saturates us that when the enemy comes knocking at the door, we answer with the word of God. Persevering in faith is what God calls us to, not capitulating in fear. And we know Satan wants us to give up and to give in. He wants you to believe, church, that you're alone in your suffering. He wants you to believe that nobody understands. He wants you to, to believe that it's not worth it to follow Jesus if this is the cost. He wants you to believe that you deserve a break, that you deserve better than this. He wants to convince you, this is the key, that God is not good. He's not worthy of being trusted because he's not good. And church, this is the age-old attack that Satan has always used. He used it in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, convincing them that God didn't want what was best for them, convincing them ultimately that God wasn't good and therefore his word was not worth being trusted. This is the same attack that Satan used in Job chapter 1. He said to God the audacity of this statement, Job only trusts you, essentially, let me paraphrase, because you've given him good things. Take away the good things and watch. He'll abandon you too, God. And you see, church, this is the way that Satan wants to work. He, he wants you and me to trust in the gifts that God has given us instead of the giver, so that when the gifts are taken away, we have no reason at all to trust that the giver is good. And in doing this, by the way, sometimes when we respond poorly in trials, what God is trying to teach us is, is exactly this. Listen, you've actually been tempted by Satan and actually you've embraced that temptation and you have put your faith and trust in the good gifts that I have given you instead of in me. And I'm calling you away from trusting in my good gifts and I want you to trust in me, the good father. God is good and he does good. And he is worthy of our trust because of who he is. And we see this so clearly that God is good because uh, we look at what he's done at the cross. We, we look and see that God is good. He has not given us, listen, what we deserve. He hasn't given us punishment for our sin. He, he hasn't caused us to spend eternity in hell. Instead, God sent his own son out of his goodness and love to rescue and redeem us from the curse of sin, from the penalty of sin, from the punishment of sin. He has instead given us new life and a new living hope as new creations in Christ. And so when Satan comes along and says, give in and the pain will end, we just need to understand that this is nothing new. This is the age old 
attack. It's the same old trick, the same old temptation. He uses it on everyone, everywhere. Look at what he says again in verse 9. He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Satan's attacking like this everywhere in the world. He's always done this everywhere to everyone. Church, the suffering we experience for Jesus is nothing new. It's not the exception. It's the norm. And our response that God calls us to has always been the call to the church. Perseverance. Perseverance. Third, notice this. We see what drives the perseverance of our faith. It's the expectation of His elect. And this is the heart of the Father for His children. That He holds out to us the expectation in His elect. He calls us to respond in this way. Verses 10 and 11, notice what he says. He says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The temptation that we have, each and every one of us, is to seek relief in this world and from this world. But what this world provides is never enough. It never truly satisfies. And here we see that if we can hold on, persevere to the end, we will not be disappointed. And here Peter actually, he bookends this book with this idea, if you remember all the way back in chapter 1, where he said your suffering is just for a little while. In the grand scheme of things, listen, even though it may last a lifetime here and now, in the grand scheme of eternity, this momentary light affliction is just a little while, and it is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. That's what he's calling us to again. And so he's, he's, again, he's reminding, listen, the expectation of what's to come, the future reward, that that living hope that moves us from the here and now all the way into eternity, that needs to grip our hearts. It needs to capture our minds. It needs to become the focus of our eyes. We are not living for the here and now. We are living for an eternal reward. The crown that will be given to us by our Heavenly Father. The, the crown that one day we will take off and we will cast at His feet and we will declare, Worthy are you, O God. God holds out this expectation of reward. I love this. It's, it's so precious you notice that this reward is going to come from the God of all grace. We're tempted so often in the midst of suffering to, to maybe believe that God isn't being gracious, but the God of grace is always present. And we will know His grace in the midst of suffering in trial if we cling to Him, and we will see His grace when He returns with the reward He has promised us. And you'll notice what He says here again, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. There's the elect right there. He has called you into his eternal glory in Christ. The theme of calling, God's saving calling, is effectual in and through Christ. 
The theme of calling to glory reminds us again of, of our end time salvation that is sure for God himself is the one who initiated our salvation and secured our salvation. He has accomplished our salvation in his death and resurrection. And as Peter has already pointed out earlier on, his exaltation, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, where he is displaying his triumph over Satan and over all of his demons who follow him. As the rest of this verse demonstrates, God will certainly complete what he has begun. And look what God will do. Did you notice this? In his grace, because he's called us into his eternal glory in Christ, on that day, that future day, God himself, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And we don't need to separate these and parse these too deeply. We simply need to see this as a, a collective reminder of the promise of God to his children. God is going to make everything right. God is going to vindicate his children. You will not be disappointed when you see your Savior face to face. Any loss you may have suffered here and now will be restored a hundredfold. Any question of your security and salvation will be fully confirmed on that day. Any weakness you have suffered will be countered with the renewed strength that is found only in the power of your God. And any thought of defeat of the enemy will be erased by God's affirmation and establishment of your position in him for all of eternity. And as you stand in the presence of your Savior, having received the reward of his presence, your heart will affirm and your mouth will declare what Peter writes in verse 11, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, their calling to glory is not questionable, but it is sure and secure. And the calling here to live for his glory, understanding that he is sovereign and in control, that is not to be in question for the believer. But instead, the, the dominion of God and the glory of his name is to be the dominating motivator in the Christian life. We suffer, we endure, we persevere. Why? Because God receives glory as we faithfully cling to him and expect our future vindication and future reward that he has promised to us. All of life lived for his glory. Church, this is part of our mission statement. It's the most important part of our mission statement. We say we want to see lost people saved, saved people matured, matured people multiplied. But here's the key, all to the glory of God. This is why we live. This is why we've been saved. This is why we exist. It's for his glory and his glory alone. And it's his glory that motivates, lastly, this faithfulness in his followers. And you can hear as Peter finishes inking this letter on the parchment, you, you hear this final cry from his heart to ours, and you hear the, the cry of God's heart to our heart. God is looking for faithfulness in his followers. He writes these words, he says, by the pen of Silvanus. Silvanus is also known as Silas. He's 
a friend as, of Paul as well, we see in the book of Acts. And I love how he describes him here. Don't you love this? A faithful brother as I regard him. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This letter comes by the, the pen of Silvanus, dictated obviously by Peter. He is a faithful brother. You'll notice that he also mentions Mark. Uh, this is the same Mark that we read about in Acts chapter 15, who at one point abandoned the missionary mission when he was with Paul and Barnabas. And Paul and Barnabas even had this argument of whether or not um, Mark would be fit to go on another missionary journey. Paul refused to take him with him. Later on, Paul affirms that Mark has been restored and has proven to be faithful. And so we read of Sylvanus and we're told he's a faithful brother. We know the story of Mark and we know how faithful he has become even when he's failed. Church, what a great reminder. We may fail in our faithfulness from time to time, but God is faithful to restore us and to make us fit for service once more. You may have loads of sin in your life. You may trip and fall. You may stumble. But God in His grace faithfully lifts you back up. And in His forgiveness and mercy, He calls you back to faithfulness. Listen, all of us sin and fall short of the glory of God. Not one of us is beyond tripping and falling into sin. But not one of us is beyond the magnificent grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here watching this video today and you know that you have sin in your life, my calling to you is do this. Respond to the faithfulness of God. Repent of your sin. Confess it to Him. And then look to the beautiful grace of Jesus Christ at the cross. Grab a hold of it. Treasure it. Praise God for it. Receive it and walk in it. Brothers and sisters, it's not too late to live a life of faithfulness to God. Just ask Mark. He knew firsthand what it was to fail and what it was then to turn around to be faithful. Mark would become the gospel writer, the, the writer of the gospel of Mark. He would take what he heard from Peter and he would again put pen to parchment and he would write for us a beautiful account of the life of Jesus Christ. And here... Peter gives us a summation of his entire letter. He closes by reminding us that everything he's written, he's written that it might be exhorting to us and declaring to us the true grace of God. This letter is written by the pen of Mark or, Sylv or Sylvanus, and it is flowing through the mouth of Peter, but is given by the inspiration of the Spirit of God. I love this. All that we have, all the instruction from God, all revelation that He gives to us is a gift of His grace. It's a gift that the Father gives to His children to lead us, to guide us, to instruct us, to help us, to bless us. 
He gives it to serve us, to save us, and he gives it to sanctify us. That's what Peter has been getting at this entire letter in church. We need to look at the word of God and we need to see it as what it is. It is the true grace of God for us. We ought to treasure it in our hearts as the true grace of God. This isn't some ordinary book. It's not simply historical accounts. It's not facts that we simply observe on a piece of paper. This is the voice of God to the heart of God's children. It is protection for us. It is provision for us. It is the beautiful grace of God for us. And we must stand firm in it, fully saturated by the Word of God, diving into it daily, uh, ingesting it and digesting it, mulling it over, memorizing it, living it out, and proclaiming the excellencies of our God to all who will listen. He gives these final closing greetings and this final closing benediction to the church. And he says this interesting phrase. He says, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. She who is at Babylon is an interesting phrase. But again, I just want you to notice, we see here the theme of election once more, who is likewise chosen. This book ends the entire book, all the way back to verse 1 of of chapter 1. We're reminded of the choosing, electing power of God. But this idea of Babylon also creates a bookend. Peter is wrapping this up so strategically. He he began, for example, of reminding the church that they were uh, dispersed, part of the new dispersion. That is a reminder all the way back to when God's people were dispersed from the land and they were sent to Babylon. They're in captivity in Babylon. And this cryptic language is actually deeply theological. Peter is using this city of Babylon to which the people of God had been exiled in their history to refer to specifically Rome, where Peter is writing from. He does this as well, um, uses this word um, Babylon uh, symbolically. John uses it, excuse me, in the book of Revelation. Again, let me just remind you that Babylon historically was the great city of world empire to which the people of God were carried captive. And the name Babylon also suggests the judgment of this world by the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, a theme that is taken up again in the book of Revelation. You see, Babylon serves as this paradigmatic city of man. And the city has its roots even back further to the Babylon that the people of God were exiled to. It goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and 11, where many of you are familiar with the Tower of Babel. It's the same root word for Babylon, and it's a reminder, listen, of this city of man that's always existed. All the way back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, we read about humanity uniting together with a common um, rebellion against God, a rejection of God. And God, as punishment uh, against this city, takes all of them who were united against him and he confuses their language and he disperses them across the face of the earth. Babylon is a reminder of rebellion against God. 
In many ways, it captures more of the sense of just Rome, although that was the, the heart of rebellion against God and their wickedness and sin. It really captures the sense and the nature of this world that we live in. It's interesting that following the account of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, it's followed immediately by Genesis chapter 12. After all the nations have been dispersed because of their sinful rebellion, God pulls one man out of the many, out of the multitudes of people, a man named Abraham. And he says to Abram, he says, I, I am going to bless you amidst all the curse of sin that we've seen from Genesis 3 all the way to chapter 11. I will now bless you. He promises to make Abram's name great. He promises him an inheritance, a land that he will look forward to, a land that would be filled with the presence of God. He promises him a seed that he would give birth to a child. But more than that, he promises that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And as we see the storyline of the Bible unfold, we're reminded that Babylon would not get the last word. The city of man will not prevail against the city of God. Paul says in Galatians that the seed of Abraham finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. You can trace the lineage of Abraham all the way down to Jesus Christ, and there we see that God himself sent his own son, God incarnate, into this world to take upon himself the curse of sin, the curse of rebellion against God, that he might save people and rescue them from their sin, that he might transfer them out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, that he might take them and rescue them from the, the claws of Babylon and place them into the heavenly city. You see what Peter is doing here. He's reminding us that in Christ, listen, we may find ourselves as the church of Jesus Christ in Babylon, surrounded by a world that is in rebellion against God. But God in his kindness and grace has pulled a, us, a people unto himself, pulled us out of Babylon. He has made us an embassy of the city of God, an outpost of the kingdom of God. And just like the people of God in old, in, in Babylon, were called to live separate and distinct, and distinct and to stand out amidst the world so that they might display the glory of God and call people to worship the one true living God, so too the church of Jesus Christ, we have been called out of Babylon. We are the city of God in the midst of the city of man. And we too must be faithful to God faithfully displaying the goodness of our God, the saving, redeeming power of our Lord, and calling all who will listen to repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Church, we do this so that the world around us can know the living hope that we have experienced in Christ. The joy of what it means to be a part of the family of God. The intimacy that we have with God and that we have with one another. And Peter ends with this note of intimacy. You'll notice what he says in verse 14. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This idea of greeting one another with a kiss of love was incredibly important. You see, the gathering of the church was the setting for this command, the physical gathering of the church. The letters of Paul and Peter were read in the service of worship 
The greeting was given in the service, in the middle of the service, this greeting of a kiss of love, an, an affectionate embrace, or it was given at the conclusion. You can think of it as, as you know how we have a break in our service where we greet one another, we welcome one another. It was, it was exactly the same thing. It was a moment in the service where the people of God expressed their affection for one another as the family of God. It's ironic, isn't it? This takes place in the gathered church. We're supposed to experience physical affection and intimacy for one another. A reminder that God has not just saved us individually, but saved us together as his people. And in the midst of social distancing, what Peter advocates is the opposite of social distancing. He, he advocates for social intimacy. Now listen, church, we, we must practice social distancing, but I want to encourage you. When we gather together, the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to have a love and affection for one another that is expressed and visibly seen towards one another. And I'll tell you this, this social distancing and even this means of communication is only, communication is only um, causing my heart to long more and more to be in your presence physically. A reminder here, that's what we've been given, of God's heart for God's children. God loves that we experience intimacy together because God is a God of intimacy and He longs for us to experience intimacy with Him. That we are in this together, church. That's what we're reminded of amidst all of the chaos of life and the craziness we're experiencing. We are in this together and that the Father is in this with us. So let us faithfully love Christ. Let us faithfully love one another with humility, with perseverance, with expectation. Let us exhibit this faithfulness as followers of Jesus Christ. And as a result, may we know and experience the peace that is found only in Jesus Christ. This is God's heart for God's children. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we're so thankful, God, that we can say that knowing that you first loved us, that you have chosen us and called us, that you have been faithful to us. God, we hear your heart for your people, for your children. And Father, we're so thankful that we have your word to stir our hearts, Lord, to spur us on, to cause us, Father, to live in greater faithfulness to you. Father, we confess we need your help. Help us to, to have faith. Help us to trust. Help us to press into you. Help us to experience more of your presence and more of your power. Help us, Father, to display you to the watching world that all may see and know and bow the knee to you as King. Father, do this in our midst, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen.